You're watching TNN. Hello. How are you? This is Nashville Demystified. You are listening to the second episode of our miniseries Music City Tales from the 1980s. A look back at Nashville and the decade that brought us the Goonies, Baby Jessica, and the fall of the Berlin Wall. I am your host, Alex Steed. Today, we are looking back at TNN, otherwise known as the Nashville Network, and Fanfare. In a lot of ways, it's the logical part two to our episode on Opryland USA, which came out last week. And thank you all for the kind words in that episode. It meant a lot to hear and read. I was told that I was relatively faithful to a 1980s Opryland USA experience. Only I gave the wrong location of the I Hear America Singing review. It was not in the New Orleans area of the park. And somebody asked where the pizza stand I'd referred to was located. That was intentionally generic. It was based on a photo I saw of a bunch of girls eating pizzas. So the answer is, I don't really know. But either way, I appreciate everyone tuning in. National Demystified is brought to you by Knack Factory, a video and content production company with offices here in the city. It is distributed by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts made by Nashvillians. You should check out the latest episode of Band Splainer, in which host Olivia Ladd presents a conglomeration of data, statistics, and reporting to illustrate the imbalance faced by women in country music. Please subscribe to this podcast, review it, share with friends, do that whole thing. It really does help. And check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, we still have a presence on Facebook for some reason, which I used to come up with snappy negative names for, but now I just need to, uh, (laughs) justify our existence there. So, uh, like and engage wherever you are on the internet and let people know that this is a thing you listen to. As always, before we get to the decade at hand, the 1980s, we need to talk a bit about the decades that preceded it, particularly with regard to country music fandom as it relates to television. By no means is this dive a comprehensive or an academic one. It is just meant to set the stage for the rest of the episode. So please keep that in mind as we proceed. The relationship between country music, rural imagery, and television goes all the way back to the beginning of the medium. In the 1940s, there were shows like Barn Dance and Saturday Night Jamboree. In the 1950s, there was Tennessee Ernie Ford's Variety Show. In the 1960s, there was the Wilburn Brothers Show, which is credited as launching the career of Loretta Lynn. Later that year, we'd see the launch of the Johnny Cash Show, which ran from 1969 to 1971 and was filmed at the Ryman, then the home of the Opry. And of course, Hee Haw, a country-themed variety show that was heavily influenced in style by Laugh-In, was uh, running at the same time, 69 to 71. It was basically rural Laugh-In. You know, they say he's 94, never looked at a girl in his life, never smoked, took a drink, or gambled. Beats me why he wanted to live so long. (laughs) And then came the rural purge. Beginning in the late 1950s, rural-style television programming was extraordinarily commonplace. And by the time the 1970s rolled around, the American Cultural Revolution had already taken place, and networks were trying to diversify their programming to match the outcome. Further, those in charge of advertising had recognized that viewers of programming with rural themes did not have as much spending money as uh, other potential viewers. In 1971, the three television networks, particularly CBS, canceled nearly every television show with a rural theme. As one actor at the time put it, 
it was basically the cancellation of any television show with a tree in it. Shows canceled included The Red Skelton Show, Lassie, The New Andy Griffith Show, The Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour, Gunsmoke, The Johnny Cash Show, and Hee Haw. Roy Clark, one of the hosts of Hee Haw, wrote a song in response to The Purge called The Lawrence Welk Hee Haw Counter Revolution Polka. Uh, it may have been influenced in name by The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Lawrence Welk's Polka Hour had also been a victim of The Purge. It was a Billboard Top 10 hit. It's worth noting, if only for fun, this purge led to the reduction of the use of the laugh track in popular television. Most of the rural shows were single camera operations without studio audiences, and so laugh tracks were used to make it sound like there were audiences and to boost the comedy of the shows. Many of the shows that took the places of the rural ones that went down in the purge helped to revolutionize television in the 70s. These included MASH and All in the Family. Uh, but there was a pretty sizable hole in rural television programming. Anyway, Hee Haw went on to live a vibrant life in first-run syndication from the time of its cancellation in 71 through the late 1990s. This means that the show was produced specifically to run on local networks rather than to be run on one of the big three in prime time. And uh, it did quite well. If you were like me and growing up and watching TV, you probably saw Hee Haw somewhere. In case you are not familiar with Hee Haw, it was, as I said up top, a variety show presented by Buck Owens and Roy Clark. Before it was purged, it was produced by CBS and produced by the CBS affiliate WLAC, which is now WTVF in downtown Nashville. It would later go on to be produced at Gaslight Studios at Opryland USA. It was inspired by the popularity of the rural shows it would later be associated with, and interestingly, it was conceived by two Canadians. Hee Haw was a replacement for the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, which featured bluegrass and newgrass pioneer John Hartford as a writer and musical director, but was countercultural by its nature. Hee Haw was not. I stand six foot eight when I'm completely unfurled. And to find a mate, I've looked all over this world. Then a store downtown advertised everything for us tall guys. And they had everything except tall girls. Hee Haw would feature, among many others, Opry regulars like Roy Acuff and Minnie Pearl, Grandpa Jones and David Stringby and Aikman, and uh, George Lindsay, uh, who was not an Opry regular, but was known for his part as Goober on The Andy Griffith Show, would come on as Goober. Slim Pickens was on the show, as was Jonathan Winters. The appeal was several parts. Live performances for one. Early on, Charlie Pride would play All I Have to Offer You Is Me, and George Jones would perform White Lightning. In the 1980s, Hank Williams Jr. would perform an electric version of Hank Sr.'s Mind Your Own Business. It would uh, launch the song back into the charts for the first time in decades. It was also a show that you could conceivably watch with the whole family. And if that did not resonate, you might enjoy watching to catch a glimpse of a, quote, hee-haw honey, a voluptuous girl-next-door type who was, for the time, provocatively dressed, 
A very short-lived spinoff would come out in the later 70s called Hee Haw Honeys. <laughs> and it would launch a young Kathy Lee Gifford into public attention. While Hee Haw was never a favorite of critics, it lasted for decades. It had a comic book adaptation and a short-lived theater spinoff that lived in Branson, Missouri from 1981 to 1983. A Tennessean retrospective points out that it has even inspired a drag show called she in 2015 that was headed by queens called Tammy Why Not in Mini Pearl Necklace. <laughs> Uh, It was country humor before King of the Hill, before Jeff Foxworthy, before Mama's Family. It did well in major metropolitan markets, proving that despite the purge, there was still a substantial hunger for country and rural-themed programming out there in the States. This hunger was well-known in Nashville, and record executives and those in proximity to the industry saw room for capitalizing on it. By the early 70s, around 325,000 people were making their way to the Opry every year. The Opry was owned by WSM, and WSM manager Irving Waugh saw an opportunity in all this. He saw an opportunity to further build Nashville's reputation as a country music destination by moving the Opry over to Donaldson and building a theme park and resort called Opryland USA. We covered that in our last episode. He also noticed another opportunity. Every year in October, around the time of the Opry's birthday, there was a country music DJ and industry convention that would happen around the Opry. And fans from throughout the country would show up in hopes of seeing and engaging their favorite stars. Anyone who's been to an actual industry trade show realizes how disappointing that probably was for fans because trade shows are ultimately pretty boring. These are typically, you know, they're just uh, kind of tedious events, though I am sure that country music DJs from the 1960s and 70s have stories and stories and stories to tell, and I want to hear all of them. But those who were trying to go about their business at the conferences were also getting interrupted and gummed up by tourists. It was just not good for anyone involved. And so Waugh, alongside Bud Wendell, who's the Opry manager, Danny Davis, who is the leader of the Nashville Brass, Hubert Long, a record executive and CMA head, Francis Preston, who was with BMI, Porter Wagner, uh, Harold Hitt, who was a studio manager at Columbia, Jerry Bradley, young producer at RCA, and Joe Walker, the executive director of CMA, they all got together and came up with a brilliant solution. And that solution was Fanfare, which was launched in 1972 as part festival, part fan convention. It would take place for the better part of a week at the Nashville Municipal Auditorium. It was co-sponsored by WSM and the Country Music Association, CMA. It had 100 exposition booths for labels and fan clubs where stars could go and do meet and greets, and it attracted 5,000 attendees. It kicked off a month after Opryland USA opened its doors to the public, and over the course of five days, there were performances by Bill Monroe, Lester Flett, Ralph Stanley, Roy Acuff, Stringbean, Ernest Tubb, Chet Atkins, Dick Curlis, Skeeter Davis, George Jones, Waylon Jennings, Loretta Lynn, and Timmy Wynette. There was also square dancing, and there was competition fiddling. In that first year, booths were offered for free to those in the industry who requested them and to fan clubs as well. The fan club which created the most attractive display was to be given, according to Billboard magazine, a valuable prize. But I haven't found out who won that prize and what that prize was. I am curious to know. If you know, please get in touch. The next year, 
fanfare doubled its booth capacity and its attendance as well. Attendance came with free entry to Aubreyland and to the Country Music Hall of Fame. It also came with three free meals. No more details than that. Just three free meals. And it was revolutionary, really, because it was just bursting with stars, making them all accessible. Teamed with the newly opened Opryland USA, it made Nashville the go-to place, not just for country music, but for access to the industry as well. Like, you could just go up to a booth and talk to George Jones, or you could get an autograph from Loretta Lynn. Up to this point, in the realm of celebrity at least, this was more or less unheard of. And it just kept growing. So, that's the backstory. We love the chance to meet and get photographs and uh, just shake hands with our favorite singers. Fanfare is just the close family relationship that country music is. I mean, the, the stars, most of the artists come out here, they want to they meet the fans just as bad as fans want to meet them. Took us 12 hours to get here. I wouldn't miss this for anything in the world. Well, I drove about 525 miles, and it took us about 10 hours, and I came because I love Loretta Lynn. <laughs> I like her talent. I think she's a lady, and I'd like to have her as a friend. Now enter the 1980s. By 1982, Fanfare, held every June, had tripled in size and had to move to the Nashville State Fairgrounds to accommodate this. Johnny and June Carter Cash played to 15,000 fans that year, as did Ricky Skaggs and Janine Frick. The next year, you could go and see Tom T. Hall host one of the label showcases. By 1984, the exhibitor booth count had increased nearly sevenfold since that first year. In 1985, Patty Loveless, not yet famous, stopped by Vince Gill's booth for an autograph, and she told him that she would someday be a star. By the end of the decade, the event would attract 24,000 attendees, nearly five times the count of that first year. People would wait all day in line to get autographs from Randy Travis or George Strait, Ricky Van Shelton, Barbara Mandrell, Reba McIntyre, or Tanya Tucker. In 1988, George Strait signed autographs in his booth for a record seven hours, seven hours and over 1,500 autographs. He wouldn't be outdone until eight years later when Garth Brooks signed for 21 hours, 21 hours. I don't know how many there were, but by that George Strait math, it was probably around 4,000, 4,000, 5,000, not quite sure, but I'm sure it was crazy. People Magazine would call the fanfare of that era a quote annual autograph orgy which as far as i'm concerned is poetry so starting in the 70s and then throughout the whole of the 80s fanfare would grow to a point where not only did it prove the viability of country music fandom year after year it capitalized on and further perpetuated the city's reputation as a destination for fans of the genre But what about the fans who couldn't make it to the city for fanfare? Or what about the fans who could, but were just home, not being in Nashville for the rest of the year? Enter the Nashville Network. As noted earlier, despite a demand for rural and country-themed content, the major networks just weren't providing. And while cable television had been around for enthusiasts as far back as the 1940s, the boom of subscription access to channels that went beyond the offerings of the big three networks and PBS really took place throughout the 1980s. 
Thanks to deregulation that took part in the middle of the decade, subscribers of basic cable went from 16 million at the end of the 1970s to 53 million by the end of the 1980s. By the end of the 80s, there were 79 channels, nearly a threefold increase from what was available at the end of the 70s. Cable was booming, and one of the most promising and seemingly most revolutionary channels was MTV, a scrappy upstart devoted to promotional music videos for pop and rock stars that was launched in 1981. Looking in on all of this was WSM, the owners of the Opry, Opryland, etc. They had the longest running pedigree, really, in popular and commercial music, and saw an opportunity here. It's worth recalling that, and this is an oversimplification of course, WSM was originally a radio station built by an insurance company that saw an opportunity to sell more insurance through its association with popular music. Commercialization and capitalization of format was in their DNA. If MTV could do it, WSM could too. And as was the case when they launched their popular country station 60 years before, they had something that people wanted. This was evidenced by the fact that they had turned Nashville into even more of a destination by way of the popular and growing Opryland USA and the annual fanfare. And even though it had been canceled in the rural purge of a decade before, the country-themed variety show Hee Haw was thriving in first-run syndication. By 1980, movies like Urban Cowboy were capitalizing on the popularity of country music the Dukes of Hazard, which was so country its narrator was Waylon Jennings and its star was a Confederate flag adorned car, was one of the most popular television shows of the 1980s. People wanted country, and Nashville was the country capital of the world. And so, in March of 1983, WSM launched the National Network, TNN for short, into 7 million homes. TNN was an entire television network devoted to country music and programming and largely produced at Gaslight Studios at Opryland, USA. It was beamed to the rest of the world out of a line of satellites there, and up until 1987, it was managed almost exclusively out of a handful of trailers in the lot next to the studio. While the occasional live performance was captured at the cannery, the stage there remains strangely situated today because it was designed to be shot by multiple cameras, the majority of original programming was shot right at Opryland. Tapings drew live audiences from tourists and locals alike. And let's just think about this for a second. This was, as far as I can tell, the only network dedicated to a specific city. Of course, New York and Los Angeles automatically get a ton of attention. They're where most shows are produced or take place. But TNN presented Nashville as the star of the show. This must have been a godsend for the Tourism Bureau, and it was an absolutely brilliant move for WSM. And eventually, Gaylord, which, through a few mergers, acquired WSM's entertainment holdings in the mid-80s. We'll cover this in other episodes, but in the 1980s, Nashville's downtown was still rough. It was still decades from becoming a bachelorette party capital, and so when tourists would come to Nashville, there were few places that they would ultimately hope to be able to travel with their families. Opryland was pretty much the whole thing. Unlike MTV, TNN was not exclusively focused on music videos. It ran videos in blocks, sure, but it also featured original programming, and it stood out from other networks by prioritizing live recordings. Everyone should have a country home, a place that they can call their own, filled with laughter, love, and song, a place where they belong. With the Nashville Network, America's country.
Join country music award winner George Strait singing his most popular hits. George Strait in Houston, this Wednesday on the Nashville Network, America's country home. And unlike MTV, which a lot of kids were not allowed to watch, TNN program managers went out of their way to ensure that all of the programs were G-rated. Its anchor program was Nashville Now, country music's answer to The Tonight Show. It was hosted by Ralph Emery, who Ken Tucker of Entertainment Weekly called an aging cool dude with an affable manner, which I can't tell (laughs) if he's being sincere. Uh, I think he is. Music City, USA. It's Nashville now. Emery had gained popularity by being a late night DJ for WSM in the late 60s. And because of the station's clear channel classification, he was already recognized by millions. Dick Clark said that Emery had launched as many country music careers as NASA had launched rockets. It was co-hosted by Shotgun Red a lovable redneck puppet from Brainerd, Minnesota, who was rich in country wit. Shotgun Red was operated by Steve Hall, who bought the puppet for $40 at a pet and hobby in Brainerd, Minnesota in 1980. Hall used it as a warm-up announcer for his band when they won a battle of the bands in 1981. Uh, They won a trip to Nashville, and Hall finagled his way into an appearance on Emory's radio show. And Emery thought that Shotgun Red, as a character, was hilarious. So when Emery got word that he'd be hosting a nightly talk show, he asked Hall to join him as Red. And Shotgun Red would be his co-host on television. It was very, very popular. It would go on to appear on Hee Haw, Country Clips, and the Shotgun Red variety show. He also went on Buckmasters, which is a hunting show, if you're not familiar. Uh, He once boasted the second largest country music fan club with 100,000 members. Red was inducted into the Minnesota Rock and Country Hall of Fame in 2006. Speaking of Buckmasters, weekend hunting and fishing programming was big on the channel, as was motorsports racing. American Sports Cavalcade, hosted by country singer Ed Boose, launched with the network in 1983 and covered NASCAR and ASA stock car racing. There was drag racing, there was IndyCar racing, there was Supercross and super bike racing and more. Diamond B Sports presents The American Sports Cavalcade. A panorama of speed color, drama, and excitement. The American Sports Cavalcade. Side by Side was a travel show hosted by country stars and country sportsmen was the same, but it was for fishing. By the end of the decade, Sundays were totally dedicated to programming of this kind, and it helped double overall viewership on that day. 
Crook and Chase was, according to critic Ken Tucker, sort of what Entertainment Tonight would be like if it were set in Nashville and hosts Mary Hart and John Tesh had personalities. That is my favorite uh, praise of one show and dig of another that <laughs> I've ever read. There's some really great Ken Tucker commentary on TNN overall, and we're going to uh, hear a bit of it here. He continued, Crook and Chase offer fanish, if not downright arcane, info on the Nashville scene. And unlike Entertainment Tonight, Crick and Chase also features in-studio interviews with everyone from Randy Travis to Carlene Carter. In these, Chase proves himself a crinkly-eyed smart aleck who likes to rib and flirt with the stars. Crook, the more responsible of the pair, tries to ask reasonably serious questions of her guests and attempts to keep good old Charlie in line with mock exasperation. It seems like it's the dynamic of Good Morning San Francisco for all you Full House fans out there. And if you can find clips uh, or you are familiar with the show, you will see that it actually sort of is. Join us for Monday's Crook and Chase when Miss Peggy Lee talks about her new autobiography. And we'll preview Farewell to the King. It's Nick Nolte's latest starring role. Plus, Lacey J. Dalton will be on set and she's bringing along her brand new husband. Watching TNN. Crook and Chase interviewed Hank Williams Jr. and the Judds and Bobby Vinton. They reported on the Monkees mid-80s tour. And they featured performances by the likes of KT Oslin and Becky Hobbs. Of the network on the whole, Tucker also said, the quote, ardent anti-actualism of some of the programming is so ferocious as to be hilarious and is just one small reason to tune into the Nashville network, which embodies an aggressive populism unlike anything else on television. Over the course of its eight-year history, TNN has also assembled a roster of regular shows that give the channel its own unpredictable character. So in a number of ways, the network was way, way ahead of its time. To name and fully describe each of TNN's programs from the 80s would take all day, but by the end of the decade, the network included 39 original programs, including live broadcasts of the Opry, a show called Phantom of the Opry that only ran for two years at the network start, a Roy Rogers and Dale Evans hosted showcase of B Westerns, a country cooking and talk show hosted by the Brady Bunch's Florence Henderson, game shows like Fandango and Top Card, and a made-for-TV cop movie called Nashville Beat. There's a show called Matt Houston, which was about a handsome, oil-wealthy socialite who investigates murders by interrogating usually bikini-clad women. Uh, and there was I-40 Paradise. It was the first ever made-for-cable sitcom that, by all accounts, was not very good. However, they could get a whole episode produced in just one day, which uh, makes for a profitable TV show. More importantly, the network became instrumental to the career development of many and gave nearly round-the-clock opportunities for country stars to be seen in American homes on a regular basis. This took place on music videos, of course, but also on racing shows and hunting shows and talk shows and variety shows. TNN actively promoted crossover, not just in genre, but in format as well. There's your favorite singer getting interviewed by Ralph Emery. There's your favorite singer on Buckmasters. There's your favorite singer cooking with the mom from the Brady Bunch. 
On one episode of Country Cooking, Randy Travis told Florence Henderson about the time that he'd auditioned on You Can Be a Star, which was TNN's version of Star Search, way back in 1983 when he went by the terrible name Randy Ray. <laughs> Randy Ray. And now here he was cooking with Florence, just how, how the tables can turn. In 1986, Alan Jackson, then Al, would go on You Can Be a Star. He'd get discovered by his career-spanning producer and become one of the faces of the modern country era. Thanks, Jim Ed. We're here with Al, who's going to do a little bit of singing. George, this is one of my favorite songs. He stopped loving her today. He said, I'll love you till I die. She told him you'll forget in time. As the years rolled slowly by, she still prayed upon his mind. In no time at all, the video era had gone from being a novelty to being a kingmaker. Beyond its career-making power, the network had found such great success in increasing engagement with country fans that the effort to encourage fans to experience Nashville in real life had been incredibly fruitful. By 1987, over a million people had visited the Opry, which was a threefold increase since Opryland and Fanfare kicked off 15 years earlier. By the end of the decade, TNN had such strong brand power and recognition that in 1989, at the starting lineup of the Indy 500, network executive David Hall was given an award, and when they announced the network name, 80,000 people stood for standing ovation. That's when Hall began to fully understand the power that the network yielded. It's also when brands started the same. Sure, there were advertisers who held the same biases that led to the rural purge in the 1970s, that TNN's audience was too blue-collar, too broke, too rural, too old to appeal to. To that, TNN program director Paul Corbin responded, Tennessee Ernie Ford once pointed to a map and said, there's New York and there's Los Angeles. I work all the cities in between. So by the end of the decade, country music had gone from being a big money enterprise into a much, much bigger big money enterprise. The Nashville scene looks back on the so-called class of 89 as the year that country music blew up, saying that everything that followed over the next three decades happened in large part because of the artist signed that year. This was the year of Garth Brooks, of Clint Black, and the TNN discovered Alan Jackson. They all released their own singles. There was Travis Tritt and Mary Chapin Carpenter. They did the same. And Vince Gill, who after a number of disappointing years on RCA, signed with MCA and then really began to uh, explode. Brooks's first album sold 600,000 copies and his second did what had been previously unheard of for the genre. It sold over a million copies. And so if 1989 kicked off a three-decade chain reaction, then the 80s are ultimately what made 1989 possible. By building and substantiating an incredible army of fandom, and by putting into place conditions for video stardom. And maybe because so much money was on the table, in sales and corporate support, and because image was so significant in the video era, the next decade would see a decline in diversity within the genre, or at least within what was given airtime. Its cabal of stars would become younger, it would become more conventionally attractive, and with few notable exceptions, it would become almost exclusively male. Modern country was slick and handsome. Ironically, the image-conscious decades that followed looked nothing like the 80s, the early video era that made this all possible.
It's no wonder that after almost a decade and a half of this, the video for Johnny Cash's cover of the song Hurt would do so well in 2002. Juxtaposed against what had become popular, the pained sound and image of a pre-video country pioneer and superstar inches away from his deathbed felt revolutionary. And that's why the High Women's 2019 self-titled album, Beyond Being Excellent, felt so needed. The genre still struggles a great deal with homogeneity. As recently as last week, Loretta Lynn was publicly lamenting country's diminished power. Last month, CMT, under great pressure from folks throughout the industry, agreed to ensure gender parity with regard to performers it features. The 21st century will see various traditionalist, neo-traditionalist, and queered versions of country emerge from various clubs and bars throughout the city and make their ways to the charts. These all serve as alternatives to the decades of slick, hetero, and male dominance that come to grip the popular face of the genre. As we'll learn over the rest of this series, the problems many from the old school and many from the new will note over the progression of country's path from the pre- to post-television era that money is nice, sure, but it's too slick, it's not gritty, it lacks authenticity and personality, it's not, quote, real like it used to be, it's not, in fact, country. That this all echoes what folks will say about almost everything Nashville has to offer as it enters the 90s and beyond. More on that in the next eight episodes. But first, where are they now? Well, Gaylord would buy CMT, Country Music Television, TNN's main country music video competitor in 1991. In doing so, it would phase out country music videos from TNN altogether. Both TNN and CMT were sold to Westinghouse in 1997, the same year that Opryland USA would close down. Shortly thereafter, nearly all of its original programming, much of which had been produced at Opryland, had been canceled. The station would lean more heavily on sports and reruns. In trying to appeal to younger demographics, it moved away from country, and by 2003, it was rebranded as Spike TV. Gaslight Studios, much of where TNN's programming was taped, was the only Opryland USA building left standing after the park closed. It was torn down in 2010 after sustaining serious damage and the catastrophic floods that came that year. Ralph Emery and Nashville Now were commemorated by the Nashville Public Library in 2015. He's still alive and well. Shotgun Red maintained popularity on a YouTube cooking channel until creator Steve Hall died of natural causes in late 2018. Crook and Chase still operate as a team. They host a radio show on iHeartRadio. Buckmasters, which helped keep TNN viewers, including my father, entertained on Sundays, is still in production. NASCAR is doing just fine. It's broadcast in 150 different countries. By the early part of this century, Fanfare would fully become the CMAs, and in 2019, it would generate $55 million for the city of Nashville. By the aughts, combined attendance would be around a quarter million people, about 50 times that of the first event held in 1972. music revolution the hippies say they'll overcome us all but while they're blowing smoke and air pollution we're hanging on with help from Geritol they're rounding up the squares in California they're picking off our heroes in New York but they'll never take away our champagne music Long as Lawrence Welk can pop his cork. (laughs) 
All right, everybody, that is it for Nashville Demystified. Uh, this is your host, Alex Seed. Again, I appreciate you being here and uh, revisiting the 1980s with us. Thanks so much to our sound engineer, our person who does all of the things that I do not know how to do <laughs> in making an episode, Cameron Davidson. Uh, thank you to We Own This Town for having this podcast on its network. I hope you'll tune in next week for another installment. Um, I, I'm still wrapping up a couple of things, so I'm not exactly sure which of our episodes is coming out next week, but it, it'll be a fun surprise for you to learn in real time. Check us out on social media, follow, subscribe, do all of those things. They do help. It does help keep the lights on, I suppose. Uh, and thanks again for listening. We'll talk soon. Bye.